If you like having Bible study in your pocket and you have an iPhone or iPad, why not leave a review? Search Bible Study Evangelista in iTunes and tell everyone how you're loving and lifting all you've been given. Here's Sonia. Let's get social. Connect with me at Bible Study Evangelista on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and now you can also find me on the number one Catholic app for iPhone and Android, Laudate. Let's connect. And now, let's get some Bible study in your pocket. Study Evangelista show, Bible study spinach that tastes like cake. I'm Sonia Corbett, your host. We're talking about confession to a priest today. And where is that in the Bible? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I have been very excited to do this show. I think the the more controversy in, down here in the South anyway, um, that a subject has, biblically speaking, the more I like it <laughs> when it comes to the Catholic Church. So we're talking then about confession as a sacrament. We have so far, we've been looking at all of the sacraments. We looked at what sacraments are and where the term sacrament, how that's biblical. We looked at baptism as a sacrament and we looked at the Eucharist and we're doing them in the order that they correspond to the natural life. So just as we are born in the natural life, we are reborn in the spirit. Just as we are nourished in our bodies, we are nourished in the soul through the Eucharist. Just as we receive medicine when we are sick, we receive medicine through confession, which is what we're going to talk about today. Sometimes then a rite of passage like adolescence um, in the natural life that can correspond to confirmation in which we receive the power from the Holy Spirit to become witnesses even unto death. And then there is the vocational in the natural. We would choose a an employment or a job or a career and of course it's not the same thing in a sacrament but those would be holy orders and marriage and then for the final journey of death into the arms of God then we have in the spiritual life we have anointing of the sick or that's also called sometimes the last rites so today we're talking about confession and before we actually do that we need to talk about sin And actually, before we talk about sin, I want to just point out that part of why confession is so controversial between Catholics and non-Catholics, and of course it has to do with the priesthood, but it's mostly because neither Catholics have a hard time defending it when it comes to confession to a priest, and non-Catholics misunderstand it. They think it's not biblical at all, but I'm going to show you that it is super biblical. But before we do that, let's talk about sin. Sin is actually a word that comes directly from the Old Testament. We call that a transliteration. So it's a word that's sort of lifted from the Old Testament and planted in the new without changing its spelling or meaning. So sin then is actually an Old Testament word. And it means this is the meaning. There are actually a lot of them, a lot of them, but here they are. Lack, perversity, transgression, which means to violate, to go beyond, to overpass or break a law, a rule, a duty, or a command. It's a breach or a rebellion. Transgression, that's a that's a big Bible churchy word, but that's basically you can boil it down to rebellion. 
So lack perversity, transgression, to miss the mark, which is how I was taught what sin is. You miss the mark. The mark is the center of the bullseye. And when you sin, you have missed the center, which is the mark. And that to me sort of smacked of perfection that we're supposed to be perfect. Well, nobody hits the bullseye every time. And we all know that we can't. And so why the big deal over sin? Well, I'm going to show you why. Um, Other Definitions included in the word sin are injustice, unrighteousness, which just means what is not right, an error, mistake, wrongness, blame, loss, guilt, offense, unreal, untrue, false, iniquity, which means crookedness, and then forfeit. That's actually my favorite definition for sin, to forfeit, because that's the part that we don't always get. We, we sort of shrug our shoulders and go, well, I can't be perfect. I can't be holy anyway. And God knows I can't because I'm, I'm an imperfect human. And so he's going to forgive me anyway. And so I should just go out and sin anyway. And that it, we're going to see in a moment is really what we are forfeiting something very, very important. But original sin comes from Adam and Eve. And I don't have the time to kind of go into why that's true. But the effects of original sin are lasting. There is this wrongness of orientation and then concupiscence, which is the inclination to sin. That's another big church word, but concupiscence means the inclination to sin. And so original sin has sort of wounded us. We're not totally corrupt as the reformers sort of went off the deep end and then proclaimed that every human being is completely corrupt. But we are weakened and we are inclined to evil and subject to error. So the catechism then says that man in, uh, I'm in 1707, man enticed by the evil one abused his freedom at the very beginning of history. He succumbed to the temptation and did what was evil. He still desires the good, but his nature bears the wound of original sin. He is now inclined to evil and subject to error. Man is divided in himself. As a result, the whole life of men, both individual and social, shows itself to be a struggle and a dramatic one between good and evil, between light and darkness. So why shouldn't we sin? Well, first of all, if we sin, we transgress against an eternal God. And a single sin then warrants an eternal punishment. To sin against even one time, to sin one time against an eternal God means an eternal punishment. And that's the part, obviously, that we cannot pay. That's called the eternal or the eternal consequences. There are actually two consequences for sin. One of them is eternal, and that is the part that we could not pay. And that's why Jesus came, is to save us from that eternal damnation that sin requires by sinning against an eternal God. Then there are the temporal consequences, and that just means a a good way to look at that is just sort of the earthly consequences. If you speed and do 90 miles an hour down the highway, you'll get a ticket. That's not revenge from the law because you have, have transgressed the law. It's just the way it is. If you get a ticket and you're caught, then you, you, I mean, if you speed and you get caught, then you get a ticket. So there are eternal consequences that we cannot pay. And then there are temporal consequences that we can pay. And we'll get to that in a moment. And every single sin brings forth death. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so every single sin causes a death. Sometimes they're small, but they still do. 
and it and that's actually a great indicator of whether or not sin is actually present if you think that something that you're doing is not sinful or maybe it hasn't gotten out of hand or whatever yet if there comes a point where it is destructive to either you your health a relationship that is important to you or anything else relating to that kind of destruction then it is sin and that's the best indicator Uh, the wages of sin is death so I'd like for you to think then of grace the grace of God and the spigot of grace imagine that there is the spigot of grace that God is showering the whole earth with all the time and imagine that you are standing specifically under this spigot like each of us has a, a an individual spigot too and God is is showering us with grace all the time when you sin a mortal sin which we'll talk about in a few moments but when you sin a grave sin you have stepped out from under the spigot of grace that means that you have separated yourself from eternal life because grace is the life of God and that is what he is showering us with and when we sin gravely we step out of that that grace So it's not a matter of losing your salvation. It's not like a penny that you're carrying and then whoops, you drop it. And oh my gosh, I lost my salvation. It's not like that. You forfeit it. And that is one of the definitions, probably in my opinion, one of the most important definitions of what sin means to forfeit. So you don't lose it like it's an accident. In order to forfeit through sin, You do it on purpose. It's presumptuous. And I'll show you that in the scriptures in just a moment. But when you do that, you cut yourself off from the grace of God. And and that grace is where eternal life comes from. And if you pursue that, um, that absence of grace long enough that you die in it, then you are eternally separated from God. And that's why Adam and Eve were not allowed to eat of the tree of life after they had eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because God did not want them to then eat of eternal life in the condition of their sin because they would have lived forever in con- in uh, damnation so he protected that tree so that they could not forever be damned through their sin so eternal life then comes from God and we separate ourselves from that when we sin gravely and eternal life is not you know we like to think of because we hear the word eternal we think of increments of time like a timeline for eternity in the future and eternity in the past and instead eternal life is a quality eternal life is a quality of life it is God's own life and imagine the kind of life that God lives does he live in purpose does he live in goodness and love and virtue is he happy and is he fulfilled all of those things and and that's what Jesus called the abundant life he said I came to give you life and give it to you more abundantly and so that's why we shouldn't sin because we forfeit something of that eternal life Every single time we sin, sin is a leech and it leeches away that eternal life from the natural life that we're living. And so after we've been baptized and we are receiving the Eucharist, then we have been reborn and we have we are being nourished. And then if we sin gravely, we must go to confession to restore ourselves in that spirit of grace so that we can receive that shower of grace that God is is in himself in his presence giving to us all the time more when we get back
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. Because of the way I grew up, I understood sin very well. I knew I was bad. In fact, I had this this interior, it was an absolute conviction that there was something wrong with me at the very core of my being. I was just inherently bad. I, I had that, that was actually um, something that my dad sort of instilled in me, the way he parented. And so we when we come to God and we come to a subject like sin with that sort of lens, we have missed it completely. We're seeing it erroneously. That in in itself is a sin. We think of sins as something that we do or don't do, but we can actually, and part of the definition is even to make a mistake. You can accidentally wander off the road and wreck your car. And of course, that's not a sin in the sense of a moral kind of thing, but you can see how an accidental detour can still be destructive. And it's the same in the spiritual life. That's what I'm trying to say. But God has no reason to punish us over and above what sin already does, because sin has its punishment built in. It says the wages of sin is death. And so every single sin brings with it a little death. A big sin brings a big death. A little sin brings a small death. And sometimes we don't see those exteriorly, but they happen on the interior, in the spirit, in the the soul, and even in the body. A lot of times we're sick and we have disease and we die early or, or something because we've been carrying this guilt and this sin for so long. Sometimes it's sin that we have committed and we have not confessed it, or we maybe have been sinned against and we have not forgiven it and that in itself is its own sin which we'll look at later but my point is that punishment for sin is built in to the doing of it wisdom chapter eleven six says that one is punished by the very things through which he sins and jeremiah two nineteen says your wickedness will chasten you And your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And so there's a warning there. Sin, if you like. You know, you you have free will. Sin, if you like. But my mama used to say this to me all the time. Be sure your sin will find you out. God is not mocked. That which you sow, you will also reap. So we reap what we sow. That's sometimes called the law of the harvest. But my point is that punishment for sin is built into it. God has no, he has no desire. He has no motivation at all to punish us on top of what's already built into sin, the punishment for sin. And so that brings us then to what a covenant is. There are blessings in every covenant, remember, 
And then there are curses with every covenant. And so the blessings of the covenant of confession as a sacrament is forgiveness and eternal life. The curses that are included in that covenant of confession then are the consequences of sin, which can lead eternally to hell. And so there are eternal consequences, but the gift of God, Romans 6, 23 says, is eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The temporal consequences, if you think that Jesus paid it all, which is how I grew up hearing, Jesus paid it all, and I don't need to do anything else. I accept Jesus as my Savior, and he cleanses me, and he makes, he saves me, and I go to heaven. And so there are no more consequences to sin. Well, if that's the way you think, then tell me why you die. Why does every human being die if Jesus paid it all? And the truth is, we know in our own experience that we incur the consequences of our sin. Jesus only paid the eternal consequences because that's the part we could not do for ourselves. But he knows that we can and we should incur the temporal consequences or the earthly consequences because they are what teach us to choose better. And ultimately, the final consequence is death itself. Because Adam and Eve sinned originally in the garden, every human being after them must die. The soul and the body must be separated. And that is a consequence of sin. That's a temporal or earthly consequence that we can still pay and we do pay. Every human being sins. How do we know? Because everyone dies. So now that we've sort of laid the foundation and we've looked at sin, which is the reason why we need confession, let's find out where the sacrament of confession is in the Bible. So let's start with the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 4, we see that when the guilty person recollected himself or came to himself, he was bound to confess his fault to the priest in the following manner, according to the rabbis. They were to place their, their hands between the horns of the, the animal victim and say, I beseech you, Lord, I have sinned. I have committed iniquity and prevarication. I have committed such a fault. I repent. I am filled with sorrow and confusion for having done so. I will relapse no more. So the rabbis taught that without confession and sorrow, no animal sacrifice would remit sin. And, and that's why all of those sacrifices had to be repeated really daily. And that's why so many animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament. If you have questions or concerns about animal sacrifices, please get my book fulfilled where I talk about all of that sacrificial stuff in great detail. It, it does disturb some people, but just remember that that was a temporary way that God could forgive sin until the Messiah would come, the true Lamb of God. But we also know from the historians, the Jewish historians, uh, Philo and Josephus, that to preserve the secret of confession, the priests were ordered to eat the victim's alone and so when there were animal sacrifices a portion of them were was reserved for the priest that was part of the priest's income we could say um, but my point there in that verse specifically although the entire book of Leviticus talks about sin and the consequences and the offerings that should be made for those the sin offerings grain offerings if you look at the chapter and paragraph headings throughout Leviticus it just reads like this whole big list of all the ways the people have sinned and what they need to do to have their sins forgiven and so it is it can be very depressing just remember that Leviticus as a genre is sort of the worship manual of the people and so it's not meant as a to be a comparison 
strictly to the way we do things in the sacrament of confession but i'm showing you the foundation was laid for the confession to a priest in the old testament because the people when they brought their offerings whether they were burnt offerings of animals or grain offerings or peace offerings or sin offerings whatever they were bringing they brought to the priest and if it was an animal they laid their hand on the head of the animal between its horns and they confessed their sin to the priest over the animal so that what they were saying symbolically is that, that my sin is transferred to this animal and then they would sacrifice it because a life the old testament says that a life is required for a life that goes back to the eternal consequences that i talked about that every sin incurs and so a life is required for a life and so the animal then took on the sin of the person and the animal was sacrificed and the blood was poured out and that is why jesus the lamb of god had to die for our sin in order to win for us the eternal life that he promises us that's why it's such a priceless gift that we just take for granted and we go off and sin without even really thinking about what's happening and what we've done. Every single one of our sins requires a life. It requires a, a life for it. And so Jesus was that life. But also in turn, we offer our daily lives back to God as the temporal offering that we can also make. But we also see throughout Leviticus uh, chapter 5, 5, it says, When a man is guilty in any of these, he shall confess the sin he has committed. Leviticus 5, 6, And he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for the sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Now, because I had never even heard of confession as a sacrament, I just assumed that meant that he confessed it, the sin to God privately in prayer or something. But this was a communal action. You did not make a sacrifice at home. <laughs> you went to the temple or the tabernacle before it was the temple. You, you took your animal to the priest and the priest sacrificed it. You had to be the one to cut its throat. When you, when you confessed your sin over the animal and you put your hand on its forehead and you confessed your sin over the animal to the priest, then you were the person with the knife who cut the throat of the animal and bled it out. And then the priest would sacrifice it on the brazen altar in the tabernacle first and then later in the temple. So the person who was confessing was doing it publicly. That's my point. It was a communal confession. It was a communal sacrifice. When I say that, I shouldn't say communal. I should say public. It was a public confession and a public sacrifice. Imagine standing up in front of everybody and making your sin public. Well, they did it in the early church. I'll, I'll show you that in a few moments. But Leviticus is full of each of these offerings and the fact that the priest made the atonement and heard the confession. And so we hear from Josephus that confession to the priest was necessary before all the other sacrifices for the sin. That's in uh, Josephus, his Antiquities 310. Then we have the matter of confession and restitution. So in Numbers 5, th these are the best examples I can find. I mean, there are a bunch of them, but I, I had to choose the ones that were the most relevant here to our discussion. But in Numbers chapter 5, I'm actually going to read through uh, verse 10, but I'll have to do it after the break. Right now, we're out of time. I'll be back in a moment.
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. Did you know you can get Bible Study Evangelista radio notes and podcasts delivered to your inbox every Monday morning? Redeem your Mondays. Join thousands of your fellow listeners by subscribing at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. get back into confession I want to shout out my friends of the show that I haven't done in a couple weeks because it is so important that I thank you personally Cindy R Nora A Bonnie S Ruth F Liz B Karen M Joseph T Amanda F Mitchie H Diane C Maureen B A Maria M Ashley B Cindy G Kelly K Jeffrey P Maribel M Mary L and Carl T thank you thank you thank you for being friends of the show you have no idea how much it helps especially in times like last week when I've had all these uh, tech problems but just thank you so we left off talking about numbers chapter 5 and the matter of restitution The Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, When a man or woman commits any of the sins that men commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person is guilty, he shall confess his sin which he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no kinsman to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest. In addition... The ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every offering, all of the holy things of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. And every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest shall be his. So restitution is where we get our penance. It was not sufficient to merely confess the wrongdoing or even offer the sacrifice they had to also offer restitution you had to repay in full and then add a penalty of a fifth of the value of the of the person or the thing uh, to the person who was wronged the one that you sinned against or defrauded and if they were no longer alive and did not have a relative surviving then the debt had to be paid to the priest So look at how complicated this matter of confession was in the Old Testament. There had to be a confession, there had to be a sacrifice, and then there had to be restitution. And so you gave back whatever it was you took, and then a penalty of a fifth more. Now, I remember being taught that sin is sin. Every sin is just sin, and each is equal, and none is worse than the other. But that is the silliest thing I've ever heard. First of all, because all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, first of all, some were more expensive and uh, worth more, we'll, we'll say, in monetary terms than others. You had pigeons, you had turtle doves, you had grain, and then you had heifers. I mean, and the difference in the cost of them to the person that owned them was a huge difference depending on what the sins were. And so here's what I would say to that. First of all, the offerings varied according to the different sin. But secondly, saying that sin is simply sin is like saying money is money. And of course that's true. But let me ask you, is one cent worth the same amount as a $100 bill? 
Of course not. And so to say that every sin is equal is, first of all, it betrays a lack of knowledge of the scriptures. And secondly, it makes no sense just experientially. We know better. In Numbers chapter 15, 22 through 30, there, this was actually, this flabbergasted me as a non-Catholic coming into the church. When I started to see this, I was like, holy cow, uh, because I had already learned or was learning, I should say, about venial and mortal sin. Now, if those terms are new to you, or maybe you're non-Catholic, a venial sin is a sin that is unintentional, accidental, or minor. It could be all of those things. A mortal sin is one that cuts you off. It's a grave sin because it cuts you off from the grace of God. And so there are degrees of sin, we say. And we, ha we know this is true because the Bible says it here in chapter 15 of Numbers. Now, I don't have time to read it all, but there are laws concerning unintentional sin in verses uh, chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. And then there are laws concerning presumptuous sin, verses 30 through 31. So we see that there are two different kinds of sin. The venial sin or the unintentional sin, there could be atonement made. In verse 25, it says the priest shall make atonement for that sin and for the whole congregation, and it shall be forgiven them because it was unintentional, and they shall bring their offering, blah, blah, blah. I don't, like I said, I don't have time to read it. But then the law concerning presumptuous sin, a presumptuous sin is one that sinned knowingly and defiantly, and it is an, a grave matter. It's exactly the same definition that we give to a mortal sin and its difference between it and a venial sin. So we have unintentional sin, which is venial in Numbers 15, and then we have presumptuous sin, which is mortal in Numbers chapter 15. And here is the law concerning presumptuous sin. Verse 30, but the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among the people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. There was no atonement. There was no forgiveness, not in a, a sacrificial economy way, not in a not in the way of the sacrifices of the Old Testament tabernacle. There was no atonement made for a sin that was purposeful and presumptuous. Only unintentional, we could call it video sin, could be atoned for. That means that if you sinned a mortal sin, you stayed in it for the rest of your life. And it was nothing but, but calling on the mercy of God that could have possibly offered atonement for that sin. Isn't that interesting? Thank goodness it's not that way now, and we have Jesus as our Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see then, here's, here's what I'm trying to lay out for you. The Old Testament talks about sacrifice, confession, and, and both into the context of the priesthood. Now here's where we get into why a priest is necessary for confession. A sin is not just sinned between you and God. Every single sin affects every other person in the community. Now, sometimes that is invisible, but it is still a reality. St. Paul talks about it, that every, uh, every member that suffers, they all suffer with it. Everyone that rejoices, they all rejoice with it. Everything is connected in ways that we cannot necessarily see or discern, but it's true. And so when you sin, you can't just get individual 
forgiveness from God because you've sinned against the entire church. And so the priest is the one that Jesus forgives you on behalf of the whole church. He forgives you through the priest on behalf of the whole church. And if you don't go to confession and you instead confess privately, then you've only gotten half of it. That's why, as a non-Catholic, it was really a good thing for me to see these church splits that happen uh, twice. And I've shared that story extensively, so I won't do that now. But but it, it drove me crazy over that second split when the people who had devastated our church, devastated our leadership, almost bankrupted our pastor. And I was so angry. And they stood up in the congregation and said, listen, I have confessed to Jesus and he has forgiven me and all is well. So you're just going to have to get over it. And that's basically what they said. And I'm telling you, that made me so mad. I wanted to hurt somebody. They didn't just hurt God. They hurt that family. They devastated the church. I was personally hurt and devastated, and it made me so angry. So when when I then started to discern the church and the teachings of the church, I could see why this confession to a priest was absolutely necessary on behalf of the whole church. So it's not just about you and God. I'm sorry if you're one of those people that's been taught that, but the Bible itself has laid out the foundation for confession for us in the Old Testament. It was never just about the person and his sin and God. It was always about the person and the priest and his sin and the community and God. And it is still that way today. So you can, of course, receive individual forgiveness, especially for those venial sins, which We'll talk about in a moment uh, how that works, but you can receive forgiveness for those venial sins without going to confession because they're not, they're not presumptuous, they're not mortal sins, they're not grave matters. But if you do sin mortally, you are required to go to confession because it, it has separated you, first of all, from God, but secondly, it has separated you from the church. And it is necessary that you receive that, that forgiveness on behalf of the entire church and not just God himself. And of course, God is the one who forgives us through the priest, but the priest does it on behalf of the entire church, the entire community, and not just you. And that is a very important point that is completely missed by non-Catholics. And it's a, it's a sad thing because confession is just so good for you, is it not? So restitution was absolutely necessary. And we talked about the fact that sin is not just sin. And in uh, Nehemiah, we can actually see that another example that the people had to confess to the priest in public. And I alluded to the fact that the early church did this as, as well, and they did. And I'll prove it to you as I get to the writings of the church fathers. But I want to get to the New Testament. And so the New Testament, we see that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, and Mark chapter 1, verse 5, the people are used to doing this. So when they want to go uh, confess, where do they go? They go to John the Baptist, and they go to be uh, baptized. Now, he can't forgive sin, but he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So he is telling them, you must repent of your sin to be forgiven. And of course, they went to him to be baptized for that. Penance is not forgiveness. Penance is that restitution idea that we talked about earlier. Now, more on that when we get back. Right now, i got to take a break.
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spares That Taste Like Cake. If you love having Bible study in your pocket, you can become a friend of the show. Click on the yellow friend of the show button on BibleStudyEvangelista.com and become a supporter of any amount and any frequency. Now, here's Sonia. Testament foundation for confession to a priest and now we're looking at New Testament confession to a priest. Where is that in the scripture? Well first of all I want to just mention uh, one of the things that a non-Catholic will say to you is that when Jesus came he did away with all of that Old Testament stuff and that is true. Well in the sense that he fulfilled them. He fulfilled them, but then he brought them forward just as he does each of the sacraments in his own person. So Jesus himself is the high priest and he is the one who ultimately we are confessing to and whose sacrifice we are depending on to give us forgiveness and give us the eternal life that he promised us so that we don't die in our sins eternally. So he is the victim. He is the priest. He is the forgiver. And we go to him for that. But he himself, as soon as he rose from the dead, he brought his apostles this gift of this breath. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And just as Jesus was sent by the Father to to reconcile the world to God, Jesus sent apostles to continue that mission. And then he breathed on them. Now, this is a verse that's a a lot of times it's glossed over, but it's very significant because it's the only, only the second time in all of scripture where God breathes on anyone. The first one, obviously, is Adam, where he breathed into Adam and he made him a living soul. And then he breathes, Jesus breathes on the apostle, apostles and says receive the holy spirit if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven if you retain the sins of any they are retained and so just as the the natural creation god breathed into it and gave it life he is now giving us new birth through his spirit in confession he says to them if you forgive the sins they're forgiven if you retain them they are retained and he has given them that power and authority himself Jesus himself gave them that a power and authority and every single bishop who has been uh, who has received ordination and holy orders receives that same power and authority and of course then the bishop can turn around and give that authority to the priest and that's exactly what happens in the church which we'll talk about when we get to holy order but right now we can see in the new testament here's where they receive the power and the authority to forgive sins now notice he's not just commissioning them to preach the gospel and he's not just telling them to tell people that they can be forgiven he's he's actually using this plural you he's saying you by the power of the holy spirit have the power to forgive and retain the sins of men and so having the power to forgive and to retain sins implies that the apostle knows what the sins are and that in turn implies some sort of oral confession otherwise how's the apostle supposed to know what to retain or what to forgive and it's the same way that jesus gave his apostles those other supernatural powers remember that when jesus healed people he said to that paralytic what is easier healing him and telling him to take up his mat and walk or telling him his sins are forgiven because those the people thought and saw every disease every disability 
every calamity as punishment for sin. And so that's why he said, which is easier to tell him he's healed or forgiven? Because they thought that being sick or being paralyzed then was a sign of sin. And he was then saying that, that if that's what you believe, I can do both. And, the, and he gives them the power to do the very same thing, the apostles. Remember, we just read this uh, throughout the readings this week in the church. The apostles went out and they performed miracles. Peter himself raised someone from the dead and people were healed. And so what that does is convey the authority of Christ, the that is in the apostles. I can't talk. (laughs) What we see there is that through the fact that they are able to heal people and to even raise them from the dead, they have the same power and authority that Jesus had. And in so doing, they are able to forgive sins because those things were related to those people. So he said them, he gave them those other supernatural powers, like raising people from the dead and healing, and he gave them that power to absolve sins, because that is raising them from a spiritual death. And so that is why Jesus said in Matthew 9, when he raised that paralytic, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's why he did it. And after he exercised that power and authority as a man, the crowds glorified God because they, he had given then authority to men. He says in Matthew 9, 8, he gave such authority to men. And of course, they meant Jesus, but Jesus gave it to the apostles and the apostles gave it to those that they ordained and on and so forth. So Matthew then indicates that this power to forgive sins had been given to men and not just a man. So healing in Acts, then all of those healings, we see that the apostles also had the power to forgive sins. So why do we have to go to a priest instead of going straight to God? Because people will say, well, the Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And we, none of us Catholics would ever argue that point. Of course, Jesus is the mediator of everything that is eternal. So the power to forgive sins comes from him. But that does not prevent other mediator. All right. For instance, and now I'm speaking to non-Catholics because they are the ones who make this argument. Who taught you the scriptures? Who taught you to read the scriptures? First of all, who taught you what they were? Who preached them to you? Who baptized? It's not just even the spiritual things that require a mediator. How did, how were you even born? Did Jesus give birth to you? Did Jesus feed you? Did Jesus teach you your reading, writing, and arithmetic? Jesus didn't do all that. Jesus uses mediators. That's my point. And you can see how ridiculous this argument is that there's only one mediator. Yes, there is one mediator in everything eternal, but Jesus uses us. He uses people to accomplish his purpose and his will for us and the church and the, the world. And so, of course, there's more than one mediator. There's not one eternal, more than one eternal mediator, because only he could do what he did for us in winning redemption and winning eternal life for us through his blood. Jesus wants us to come to him when we fall into sin. He wants us to be forgiven. And he he wants it so much that he gave the apostles the, the power to forgive sins. And that power and 
through the apostles and their successors doesn't come from them. It comes from God. And so throughout the New Testament, Jesus gave the apostles authority over unclean spirits, the authority to heal, the authority to raise people from the dead, etc., etc. So no Christian assumes that those powers come from men themselves, since God is the one that has chosen to use them to manifest his power and his mercy and his forgiveness. Everything comes from God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. They are just the instrument that God uses. And it's the same for forgiveness in the church. We go to the priest, the priest hears our confession, and we are absolved of our sins and we're given a penance. He gave us a way to draw near him and receive that grace. Why do you want another way? <laughs> I mean, it, of course, it, it can be difficult to go to confession. That's why people sometimes wait forever and ever and ever before they do, but you shouldn't. It is such a great grace. It doesn't mean because we go to the priest that, that Jesus's work was somehow insufficient. I know that that's what people say, but they don't. And I wish I had more time, but I don't because we're almost out of time here. But confession to a priest is an apostolic tradition. It wasn't invented in, in the 1200s at the Fourth Lateran Council, like some people say. It was formally defined there because that's when it began to be challenged. But nobody objected at that time because everybody had been doing it. In fact, the early church in the Didache, we hear that they made them confess out loud. They made them do it in public. Confess your sins in church in the Didache 4, uh, 14. And do not go up to your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. On the Lord's day, gather together, break bread and give thanks after confessing your transgressions so that your sacrifice may be pure. Then we see in Tertullian, regarding confession, some flee from this work as being an exposure of themselves or they put it off from day to day. I presume there are more mindful of modesty than of salvation, like those who contract a disease in the more shameful parts of the body and shun making themselves known to the physician positions, and so they perish along with their own bashfulness. So Tertullian is saying, stop being bashful and just go. Um, Hippolytus says, the bishop conducting the ordination of the new bishop shall pray, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, pour forth now that power which comes from you from your royal spirit which you gave to your beloved son Jesus Christ, and which he bestowed on his holy apostles, and grant this your servant whom you have chosen for the episcopate, or the uh, holy orders, the power to feed your holy flock and to serve without blame as your high priest and by the spirit of the high priesthood to have authority to forgive sins in accord with your command. So that's the prayer that they pray for ordination. And then John Chrysostom says, priests have received a power which God has given neither to angels nor archangels. It was said to them, whosoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you shall loose shall be loosed. Temporal rulers have indeed the power of binding, but they can only bind the body. Priests, in contrast, can bind with a bond which pertains to the soul itself and transcends the very heavens. I wish I had more time and I don't, but I want very quickly to leave you with the conditions for a mortal sin. A mortal sin is a serious sin. It is one that is transgresses against the Ten Commandments or is a uh, one of the seven deadly sins. You must know that the thing that you're doing is wrong and you must freely choose it. It is a presumptuous sin. It's a rebellion. And if you have sinned in that way, dear one, get thee to confession. Don't be bashful. Don't put it off. It's important to restore your relationship to God and the church. And you just don't know when your very last breath will be. And you don't want to be in a state of mortal sin when that occurs. You can confess venial sins, and I would encourage you to do that as well because you receive grace. That was the only 
sacrament that I was able to receive as a non-Catholic, and I went every single week because that's the only thing I could get, and I absolutely loved it. I still love it. I still love to go to confession because I know I'm receiving grace along with the Eucharist when I receive the Eucharist. That's another point. Never, never receive the Eucharist without having gone to confession for a mortal sin first, or else you are guilty of the body of Christ, the body and blood of the Lord, according to Paul. Until next week, I'm Sonia Corbett, your Bible study evangelist. Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Find out more at BibleStudyEvangelista.com.